This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 3rd, 2023, a day before Independence Day, July 4th in the United States. No doubt somebody will present July 4th this year in the context of David and Goliath, of David rebelling against Goliath and winning the American rebellion against the British Empire. That David and Goliath metaphor, of course, is sometimes overused, but it's particularly appropriate in sports in terms of American celebrations. Sometimes it's used in terms of the so-called miracle on the ice in 1980 Olympics when the U.S., according to ESPN at least, uh, defied the numbers to beat the Soviet Union. The Russians, or the Soviets at least, were always very good at ice hockey and dominated the ice and rink. But there was, before the miracle of the ice in 1980, uh, a much more profound, I think, miracle on ice. Back in 1969, a real David and Goliath story, which we're going to talk about today. I have to admit, I didn't know about it before the book came out. Uh, it took place in the 1969 Ice Hockey World Championships and uh, was, uh, was the result of two victories by Czechoslovakia. At that point, of course, there was a Czechoslovakian state which had been colonized by the Soviets. In their victory, two victories over the Soviets who were up to that point unbeaten. It had huge political, cultural, uh, perhaps even military ramifications. And there's a new book out about it. It's out uh, tomorrow, July 4th, perhaps appropriately enough, by my guest, Ethan Shiner, Freedom to Win, a Cold War story of the courageous hockey team that fought the Soviets for the soul of its people and Olympic gold. Ethan is joining us from Orinda, just over the bay, uh, on the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay. Uh, Ethan, congratulations on this new book. I know you teach at UC, um, uh, UC uh, Davis, Davis with a, in the political science department with a focus on the intersection of politics and sports. Is that what drew you to this story? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And that was a perfect introduction. Uh, that was, you You laid it out exactly Do right. I get an A, Ian? Oh, you, you, you get an A plus for the setup. Wow. Thing. That was really great. And, That's you, the no, first time a... I've ever scored an e, <laughs> A plus, especially from a political scientist. <laughs> it's a complicated story. And you, you, you uh, set the backdrop really well. Um, so yes, exactly. The way I ended up writing this book uh, was exactly because I was trying to learn about the intersection between politics and sports. I, I actually, my, my background is not on sports. I mean, I'm a huge sports fan, which is uh, part of the reason I ultimately got into this. But I, in my previous life, I wrote books on Japan and elections around the world. And I got it into my head that it would be fun to teach a class on politics and sports. I thought, you know, the students would like that and that would be fun. And it ended up to be a big mistake. <laughs> After a few weeks, I suddenly realized I didn't have enough material and I got really uh, incredibly stressed out. And so I got up in the middle of the night during the, the middle of the term, just trying to figure out something. And I started Googling and I come across the story that you outlined today. I was trying to teach this class on politics and sports, but the, I come across this extraordinary story as I'm Googling around 
of how the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 and the people of Czechoslovakia had no way to fight back. And seven months later in March, 1969, they have an opportunity in the 1969 World Ice Hockey Championships. And then the victories in those matches end up leading to extraordinary riots back in Czechoslovakia that completely changed the country. So let's, um, because not everyone's going to be familiar with the narrative. It was a long time ago now. Oh, yeah. Um, Ethan, remind us of what happened in Prague in the summer or the spring of 1968. Yeah, and again, your your, your, um, backdrop here is just right. So for years... Uh, Beginning in 1948, uh, Czechoslovakia had become a Soviet-backed communist state, incredibly oppressive, uh, where people couldn't leave the country. Uh, You could be imprisoned if you said the wrong thing. Uh, People were put to death. Uh, You know, enemies of the state were put to death merely for pushing back against the regime or just because they were a useful scapegoat. And uh, so that's how Czechoslovakia looked uh, beginning in 1948. Uh, In 1968, though, there was a thaw under a leader, Alexander Dubček, and we saw what was called the Prague Spring. And it really was like a breath of fresh air where the country uh, really started to open up. I mean, it wasn't trying to become a a democratic capitalist state. People wanted to push for exactly as the link you just showed. Um, they wanted to push for socialism with a human face. They believed in socialism, but wanted to take the shackles off the people, let them speak freely. Uh, the government wanted to show what it was really doing. And so there was this great joy in 1968. Ah, we finally have freedom. Well, there was one group that really hated this new freedom for Czechoslovakia, and that was the Soviet leadership. And so in August of 1968, the Soviet leadership sent in tanks to crush the liberalization that was occurring in Czechoslovakia. So that, of course, creates the backdrop. Um, it was, a, it was um, a profoundly depressing invasion by the Russians, uh, I guess in some ways equivalent to what they're doing in Ukraine today, although in other ways it's rather different. Right. So the the the, the the, the Prague Spring was uh, was crushed by R- Russian troops, by Soviet troops. Alexander Dubček um, was he put in prison? Well, so Dubček, so in immediately with the Soviet invasion, uh, the Soviets it seemed planned to put him to death. Uh, the problem, though, was there were literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Czechs and Slovaks in the street. And once they learned that Dubček had been kidnapped by the Soviets, the Soviets had brought him all the way to Moscow. Uh, once the the people back home got you know got word that their leader, their beloved leader, had been snatched away, who was a Slo- as it happened was a Slovakian of, of exactly Slovak exactly, and the people were deeply upset about their leader being kidnapped. And so part of their protests in the streets were, "You got to bring home our leader. You got to take care of our leader." And so the Soviets realized that if they actually killed him, they they might have even more problems in the streets. So they decided to try and take advantage of having Dubček and try and make him at least agree to some of their demands. So as a result, Dubček remained in power until April 1969. And his actually getting booted out of power becomes part of the story of the hockey matches. So let's then fast forward to 1969. Uh, 
the Czechoslovakia had been invaded by the Russians or reinvaded by the Russians, a bloody invasion, one of the more, one of the more depressing um, events of the 1960s. Um, and then, of course, we have the 1969 Ice Hockey World Championships. Uh, ice hockey is a huge deal in Eastern Europe, particularly in Russia and Czechoslovakia, isn't it, Even Huge. Um, in both countries, I mean, it, throughout Europe, it's hard uh, to top soccer in terms of popularity. But in both the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia, uh, hockey, the hockey teams are, on the international level, so incredibly successful that they rise nearly to the level of soccer fandom in terms of, you know, the people rooting for their hockey teams and cheering for their hockey teams. The Soviet Union, by the late 1960s, probably starting in this, in this tournament in 1969, the Soviet Union is uh, the equal of any hockey team in the world, and, I, and by which I, I include the Canadians at this point. So a few years after the 1969 World Championship, so in 1972, the top Soviet players go against the top professional Canadians. And basically the two sides play to a standstill. Canada ends up winning an eight game tournament just by one goal. Um, but the Soviets were simply great. And so that made it all the more difficult what Czechoslovakia was. Trying uh, was to the do. Night, uh, I have to admit, I'm not a big ice hockey yeah. fan. Um, are these world championships, I mean, they don't get the visibility of the Football World Cup, but were they equivalent or are they equivalent of the World Cup? Uh, not exactly the equivalent of the World Cup, and there's an important reason why. Um, so the Canadian team, if, if you put all the Canadian best players uh, you know, and created a national Canadian team, um, that team would have been would have defeated essentially anybody except for the Soviets. And then it would have been extremely close between the two of them. The problem, though, is the world championships, only official amateurs could play. So all the Canadian best players are in the National Hockey League, the NHL. And so they weren't permitted to play. in. The so world that makes the Soviets, who all claim to be amateur, <laughs> right. even, of course, they were. And it's the old Olympic conundrum, mm -hmm. even more dominant. So. So the, 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 the Soviets play the Czechs, um, and the Czechs, this is a, a group system, and the Czechs win twice. Is that yes. what the miracle was, the Frida, this, this, this remarkable, uh, it's not just one victory, it's two? I mean, first of all, yes, the two victories in and of themselves is miraculous. They, I mean, they, the, the Czechoslovakian team was phenomenal. But beating this Soviet team was astonishing. So in part, the miracle is uh, the, this, this lesser team, Czechoslovakia's team, defeating the, the greatest, conceivably the greatest team in the world, the Soviets, including, you know, the, the greatest team, meaning including the Canadians. Uh, but there's a bit more to it than that. Um, back in 1950, Czechoslovakia's uh, national hockey team had actually been imprisoned. Uh, the government claimed that the national hockey team players were planning to defect. And so it imprisoned the national team and including a couple of men, uh, they sent them away for 15, the, the sentence was 15 years in the uranium mines. So uh, this obviously gutted the national team and there became a sense then in Czechoslovakia that, you know what, this might've been ordered by the Soviets. So regular people in Czechoslovakia thought it's possible the Soviets tried to actually 
destroy the Czechoslovak national hockey team. The Soviets cheating in sports. I never heard that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is brand new. But there was a special reason for it, which was this was the time when the Soviet national team was starting to get built up. And so in the 1950s, the Soviet national team became one of the top uh, squads in the world. So what people in Czechoslovakia thought for the next two decades in the 50s and 60s, people thought, oh, we aren't in, in Czechoslovakia, people thought, we are in te- we're being forced to lose to the Soviets on purpose. This is a huge deal because once we get around to the Prague Spring, people are thinking, because throughout this time, Czechoslovakia had only beaten the Soviets once prior to 1968 in major tournament play. So people are sitting there going, we don't have any freedoms here. We don't even have the freedom to actually compete on an even playing field with other squads. And so I interviewed uh, Martina Navratilova going into oh, the you did? Wow. I did. Yes. This was this was great. And she she was 12 years old at the time of these hockey matches. And she vividly remembers the hockey matches. She sat in her she was sat. She was jumping up and down with her family in their little living space in their apartment, screaming at their, you know, little tiny black and white television. And so it was on that, that. That was the question I wanted to ask you, Ethan. Um, I mean, back then we didn't have ESPN. We didn't have the Internet. It was on TV. It was on TV. And in fact, in Czechoslovakia, 93 percent of all households with televisions turned on these matches. It was such a big deal. And, you know, going back to the whole freedom thing, actually, this comes full circle to the issue, the the title of my book and the issue of whether people had freedom in Czechoslovakia. People felt all their freedoms were being taken away once the Soviets had invaded. They had gotten all these new freedoms with the Prague Spring. The Soviets came back in. They started you know, crushing things, that things are returning to the oppression of before. And the people also think, again, you know, before we didn't have the freedom to defeat the Soviets. Something amazing is Czechoslovakia did win a match narrowly against the Soviets in 68, but now everybody's thinking that was perhaps just because of the Prague Spring. So now in 69, people are wondering, do we have any freedoms again? So here's what Martina told me when I asked her about these hockey matches. She said the hockey games in 1969 went beyond sports. They gave people hope. They let us know that we still had the freedom to win. So that's where the title comes from. People were really wondering whether they had any kind of freedom and these hockey matches were going to show them whether they did. Sports has huge significance politically, particularly it seems in Eastern Europe under the Soviets. I remember an interesting novel by Tibor Fischer, an Anglo-Hungarian writer under the frog, which was about the political ramifications of the defeat of Hungary by the Germans in the 1954 World Cup. That also resulted in riots in Hungary, which, of course, had also been colonized by the Soviets. Sports was then massively important in Eastern Europe, not just in Czechoslovakia, wasn't it, Ethan? Massively important. I mean, it was such a... I mean, this was important for the people who looked at the Communist Party and thought... The principal way I can move up in society is to be a member of the Communist Party. But what if I don't want to do that? Uh, People could rise up in society by being successful athletes because the state was so interested in the propaganda power of sports. And so uh, top athletes in the country gained favors that nobody except for members of the Communist Party could gain. By the way, I love that you showed Hungary there. 
Hungary had its own version of these hockey matches uh, in 1956, in the after, right after the Soviet uh, crushing of the Hungarian Revolution, there was a big water polo match in the 1956 Olympics. Yeah, I remember that. Where yeah. there was blood in the water, and people continue to talk about that. So yes, sports huge. And I guess, um, I mean, if you were doing a universal East European history of this, the East Germans had been so <laughs> utterly colonized by the Russians that East Germany was like a, a sort of a, almost a substitute Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. Oh, sure. And then it gets even messier because then we have, starting in the early 1970s, the East German team starts doping like crazy. And so by 1976, the levels of success, particularly by East German women in the Olympics, where they're even, you know, they're in certain sports, they're able to dominate the Soviets as well. Yeah, that's all going on for sure. Uh, maybe there's another book about that and Martin <laughs> Navratilova. But um, so let's get back to the story. So even though, the, I mean, this was just from a little bit of research I was doing this morning on Wikipedia, even though the Czechs defeated the Russians or the Soviets twice, they were in the same pool, but they didn't actually win the championships. Is that right? Yes, that's actually that's one of the devastating, in part devastating, um, but there's actually... There's they finished a, in third place after the Soviets place. and the Swedes. Exactly. There is one of these really strange cases where Czechoslovakia beat... The, I'm going to say this slowly because it's slightly confusing. Czechoslovakia beat the Soviets twice. The Soviets beat Sweden twice and Sweden beat Czechoslovakia twice. So they were all tied in terms of their mm. wins and losses. The Swedes couldn't do the Czechs a, a favor? Couldn't do them a favor. They, they, there was a nice rivalry, actually a very healthy one between Sweden and Czechoslovakia. And Sweden was really good at, at hockey as well. And uh, they, Sweden was always delighted to beat Czechoslovakia. Um, but there was a, a key part of this, um, which actually made things much less depressing for people back in Czechoslovakia. As the players were getting ready to go off to this tournament, they actually they they went to, say, a meet and greet where fans came to greet the entire team. And people were shouting at the squad before they went off to the tournament. We don't care what you do just as long as you beat the Russians. And this meant more to people than any kind of world championship uh, gold medal that they defeated the Soviets twice. That meant that much to the, to the uh, people back home. And by the way, I, I should add something else about what, the, what was going on in uh, the, the tournament itself. The players were also really taking a big stand against the Soviets. They would do things like re they refused to shake hands with the uh, Soviet players, which is a, which a big no-no. In international hockey, you're supposed to shake hands. Right. After I mean, the I wonder that. You know, the, the headlines today, uh, I mentioned Ukraine earlier, full of controversies about what, uh, uh, the, the Russians in sports. One Ukrainian high jumper today suggested that Russians should be excluded from next year's uh, uh, Paris Olympics. Wimbledon starting today, uh, lots of controversy about Russian and Belarusian tennis players there. Yep. Does your story tell us anything about how we should or shouldn't ban Russian athletes in international tournaments? Uh, not so much. I mean, that doesn't uh, that doesn't speak too well uh, to what's going on in terms of bans of athletes or teams. Uh, I will say um, that looking at this 1969 tournament, uh, there was not serious 
um, thought given to banning the Soviet team. And ultimately, the Soviet team was, in 1969, able to use its gold medal in this tournament as a propaganda win, in part. This was one of these things where people in the Soviet Union pointed to, look how great we did again, even after uh, they had been, uh, after the world had, you know, shouted them down for invading Czechoslovakia. And in fact, um, the Soviets, meanwhile, also used it to claim, look, we are uh, improving our relationship with Czechoslovakia. We're able to play nice with them on the ice. So uh, there seems to be a little bit uh, from my story about how uh, the bad guys can use this stuff for profit. So, so under the Soviets, I know Russian sports was arranged on, on military principles, and often the, the top sports teams were military teams. Was, was there a close association between the Soviet team and the Russian military? Were a lot of the players in the military? Uh, not to the extent that it was later on. By the late 1970s, almost the entire Soviet uh, national hockey team was the army team. There was essentially no difference between them. In the, 19, in the late 1960s, uh, a large number of the best players came either from the army team or the Ministry of Interior team, which was associated with you know, state security kinds of stuff. A lot of the players were, but it wasn't quite the same link up that it became later on, where there was essentially no difference between. So tell us a little bit about the, the Czech team or the Czechoslovakian team. I know that the the Holics, yeah. um, I won't make any joke about alcoholics here, but the <laughs> Holics were, um, were influential. There was more than one Holic on the Czechoslovakian team. Is that fair? That's exactly right. In fact, there were uh, two Holiks on the national team along with their best friend, Jan Suki. So the three of them had grown up in this little town of about 10, 15,000 people. And the Holik family had actually had a butcher shop that the communists had taken away when the communists took power uh, following the 1948 coup. And so the Holiks grew up hating the communists and hating the Soviets, who they saw as the puppet masters behind all of this. And Yaroslav Holik is the center of the story. He's the older brother, the older, the, the oldest of the, the two boys who grew up hating the communists. And, and Yaroslav Holik was a wild man who constantly fought everybody. And one of the things he did in these world championship games is he led a group of players in getting black tape and on the on the jerseys that the Czechoslovak players had, uh, they were forced to have the the crest for the country. And on the top of the crest was a communist star. And so what Yaroslav Holik led the team in doing, a number of players on the Czechoslovak team in doing, is they got black tape and taped over the communist star, which can get you in huge amounts of trouble with the people back home. It was his way of saying to the communists and to the Soviets, you and your system are dead to us. I'm a big fan of uh, the stories of Shvek. Uh, and there is a, a, a Shvekian quality to this story, isn't there, Ethan? So a, a large part of what the, I mean, a lot of um, the, the people in Czechoslovakia see things in a very Shvekian way, which is um, if you can't, so, so there was a lot of peaceful resistance. There wasn't a lot of, you know, direct armed conflict uh, when faced with the Soviets coming in. And so there was really this sense of, look, we can't take the normal confrontational approaches to fighting back against the Soviets. So that's the typical way people see this as sort of a Shvekian kind of thing. And did the intellectuals pick on it? I 
pick up on it. You know, the great that that remarkably rich uh, generation of, of Czech writers, filmmakers, Milos Forman, uh, Kundera, Harvel, of course. Or did some of the intellectuals dismiss this as being rather peripheral or superficial? Oh, you mean the hockey matches and yeah. the, the, the games against? So as I said, almost everybody watched these. And so I um, watched these matches on television. And, and there, there, I had one funny exchange with a woman who was a professor at Charles University. And uh, she was, you know, kind of classic intellectual. And, I, and she was 22 years old in 1969 during these matches. And so I was just interviewing her about her life at the time. And I, she, she, asked me, what's the subject of your book? And I said, well, it's the, you know, the link between politics and hockey during the Cold War in your country. And she said, well, I'm so sorry. I don't know anything about hockey. And I said, that's okay. Just tell me about 1969. What do you remember that? And she said, oh, 1969. That was the year that our boys fought the Soviets on the ice. They were such incredible matches. I watched <laughs> them both. And here's a really key part too. After the matches, you know, earlier I talked about how they link up to Alexander Dubček. After the second of the matches, there was such jubilation back in Czechoslovakia that literally half a million people took to the streets in jubilation. And so this woman I was speaking to said, oh, yes. And even though I was eight and a half months pregnant, I went out into the streets to celebrate. So, yes, intellectuals were uh, at least all the intellectuals I spoke with. Uh, they were very much invested. So, so in were these what called what are called now the? Um, they the were the hockey, hockey riots. riots. Yes, and they were a big thing. I mean, this is it is unusual. I mean, riots doesn't suggest anything very political, but were they essentially the second wave of of the Prague Spring? Well, what they were is the second wave of of resistance to the Soviet presence. So here's what happened. Uh, immediately after the Soviets, after the, the matches, the 1969 matches, people take to the streets, they're celebrating, like everything seems fine. Then thousands uh, throughout the country start going to the Soviet barracks, wherever Soviet forces were barracks around the country. And there were something like 70,000 Soviet troops in the country at this point. Wherever Soviets were barracks, people went to those houses, those housing places, the barracks, and started th thrusting uh, bricks, rocks, throwing anything they could at the barracks. So they were focused very much on the Soviets in this. People start holding signs as well that at the second match, uh, the, the Czechoslovakia won four to three. People are holding up signs that say Dubček four, Brezhnev three. And then thousands go to the Aeroflot office in Prague. Now, Aeroflot was the Soviet airline and people go in and destroy the Soviet airline office. So this was very much it's their way of fighting back. And they're trying to go back to how they had initially tried to resist when the Soviets came in in August 1968. But I want to add one more thing on this, which is really important. So the Soviets instantly point to these riots and say, this is a sign that Czechoslovakia's uh, leaders can't control their people. And within a couple of weeks, they kick Dubček out of power, and he's forced to leave the country to go become the ambassador to Turkey. And it's funny. Um, I wonder if um, I wonder if other people were watching uh, what happened, because 
uh, a, a few months later, in July of 1969, there was actually a football war, not an ice hockey war, between El Salvador and Honduras that That's actually right. resulted in a real war. Um, uh, the famous soccer war of right. 1969. Do you think that the, the Hondurans and the El Salvadorians were somehow inspired by the, the Czechs? I, I suspect they weren't, but it really does show that in a, at certain cases, uh, you know, it's not to say that in either case it was the sport that caused the unrest, but you have a certain unusual cases where the intensity of people's feelings surrounding sports can help add actual, uh, extra kindling to the flames that are already starting to be ignited. And finally, uh, Ethan, I'm wondering about the legacy. You mentioned you talked to Martina Navratilova, many other uh, Czechoslovakians uh, who remember those inspiring and troubling days. But of course, uh, Czechoslovakia no longer exists. It was split in 1992 into a Czech and a Slovakian state. It was a relatively amicable divorce, especially compared to the Balkan Wars or other uh, civil wars, but at the same time, uh, the the two countries broke into two, according to the New York Times at the yep. time, uh, to to wide regret. Um, is uh, is uh, are these riots or the, the, this 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 remarkable narrative? How are they thought of now, both in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia? Are they seen in the same way? Are people in some ways perhaps even nostalgic for a, for a Czechoslovakia? To some degree, people in both uh, countries are nostalgic for a Czechoslovakia. As you pointed out, actually, uh, majorities of both countries' populations didn't want to have this split. Uh, just to give you one sense of, of how much people look back on the importance of these matches and what it meant to people, uh, what, it's still, what they still mean to people, uh, I mentioned before that uh, Yaroslav Holik, uh, a player for Czechoslovakia, led a bunch of his teammates in putting black tape over their jerseys. You can buy in the Czech Republic, um, and actually, no, in, in Slovakia as well. Um, I've, seen, I've seen them sold in Slovakia. You can buy um, versions of the sweaters that the players wore, um, so replicas of what they wore in 1969, with part of the sweater actually being the black tape placed over the star. So people still think about the political message from these matches. And, and they say 69 on the back, meaning pointing to 1969. And I'm guessing, for, uh, finally, um, Ethan, that this narrative gives particular resonance to both Czech and Slovakian solidarity with the Ukrainians. Uh, unlike uh, certainly the Hungarians, it's very clear in Central Europe among, I guess, the Poles as well, but for, for the Czechs and Slovakians, that what the Ukrainians are now going through is, is utterly incomprehensible and immoral. To people in Czech Republic and Slovakia, yeah, they, this is incredibly painful to them. There are many memories of them, and they are two of the strongest supporters of Ukraine in Europe. And what, what's really impressive, too, is fans in both countries will hold up signs at international hockey tournaments in support of Ukraine. So they continue to think about it and they continue to think about their past, see the links to Ukraine and therefore give extra support to you, the Ukrainians.